0: Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. This is Bo York, executive producer of Footnotes, as well as executive producer for Pass the Mic and The Witness as a whole. Uh, Here with, of course, the usual host of Footnotes, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how are you doing today? I know that's a loaded question, brother.
1: Holding up is probably what I can say right now, is holding up. Um, Glad to be healthy in the midst of this pandemic, which is also happening right now. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, things could be better. (laughs) We'll get into that, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's you know, I know for for many folks listening right now, I mean, you know, uh, in in the midst of what has been a lot of pain, uh, what has been a growing pain, what has been a growing pressure, um, a lot of folks look to uh, voices, especially like yours, uh, who can who can really kind of help with the processing, both. In, the, in an emotional state, but also in a historical context. I mean, you know, no listener, no regular listener of Footnotes is not fully aware of the historian status of one Jamar Tisby. Um, and so I think it, it's probably appropriate to kind of kick things off with the knowledge that, you know, people will be listening to this episode uh, decades in the future and kind of laying out the context for, for why we're doing things a little different today.
1: Yeah, so... <sighs> It's been a very tough couple of weeks in current events. Um, I mean, it depends on how far back you can go, but we know that um, Brianna Taylor, a black woman in Louisville, Kentucky, was killed in her home in a police raid due to them having the wrong address and uh, doing a surprise raid. On their house, her boyfriend uh, shot back with a gun he was legally authorized to have. He thought his home was being invaded and was protecting himself and his girlfriend. Uh, re- police responded in a hail of bullets and killed Brianna Taylor. Uh, we heard about Ahmad Arbery. Uh, this is a murder that happened back in February, but the video only recently, recently became available where he was um, observed, considered suspicious, pursued... And ultimately killed. Although he was unarmed and was in the neighborhood, apparently just for a jog, he had looked into uh, a, a house that was under construction. hadn't touched anything, hadn't broken anything, um, but it was enough to get him a death sentence in the minds of the two white men, uh, three really, with the with the camera person uh, who pursued and ultimately killed him. And then we heard about a non-fatal but still traumatic event with a man named Christian Cooper in Central Park in New York City. He, he's literally a bird watcher. like This is something he regularly does. And he was out in a particular area of Central Park, and there was a white woman with her dog. All dogs are supposed to be on a leash. She was holding the leash, but it was not attached to the dog's collar, so he invited her to put the dog uh, on a leash. She refused, and... Um, ended up calling 911 and acting on the phone as if she was in physical danger, as if she was scared for her life from Christian Cooper, who is, of course, a black man, right? And so uh, lots of discussion about her using her her whiteness and her white femininity um, as a weapon that, that could have ended up very badly for this black man in Central Park. And then most recently... Uh, george floyd was killed on camera a black man by a white police officer who chillingly had his ne- his his knee on the back of floyd's neck uh calmly kneeling there while floyd is saying i can't breathe and pleading for his life even calling out for his mom and so uh he died floyd floyd was killed in that encounter and of course Seeing that on video, on top of everything else, has sparked uprisings now in Minneapolis, which is the city where it occurred. Uh, There's now been some property damage, which has shifted the conversation. Um, So those are the incidents. We haven't talked yet about the responses, uh, but that's pretty important to mention as well, um, that the president put out uh, some tweets and for the first time, he's being censored on Twitter, not on Facebook, hmm. but on Twitter. And he sent out a tweet that said, uh, they're sending the National Guard, but when the, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, meaning that, you know, the implication was that the National Guard would use force, lethal force, if necessary to quell the protests, which was enough w- for the first time for that tweet to get censored by Twitter and say that it violated their rules about inciting violence. So this is where we are, and this is why we're doing a special episode of Footnotes.
0: Man, you know, I, I think about over the last couple of years, we've been, you know, hopping on mic for, you know, at least, what, seven, eight years now? Yeah. Uh, with uh, with past the Mic and, and now Footnotes as well. And throughout that time, there's been moments we've been able to, um, you know, provide, provide commentary, provide discussion, kind of, you know, uh, be very, very open and honest in the midst of some very trying moments in our history. And every single one of those moments over the course of these last couple of years, kind of feel like these, these, these pain points, these pressure points, you know what I mean? Uh, That, that keep getting more intensified and intensified. And now we find ourselves in this year with these number of killings and threats Two black bodies in the midst of 45 and Trump's presidency, and the commentary that he is providing to it, and the commentary of his followers, his most aggressive followers. And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And it's just, it feels right now like this isn't like this to some extent is kind of what a lot has been building to. Mm. Does that make sense? I mean, is that a fair.
1: It, it is the accumulation of events, right? So the the trajectory that I've seen is back in 2014, 2015, in the wake of Mike Brown's murder, and then talking about Black Lives Matter, and all the videos of unarmed black and brown people being killed by police officers. In in, in that phase, the discussion was, we have to say something, we have to speak out, especially with church folks, right? It was like, pastors, churches, what are Mm -hmm, you doing? mm -hmm. Um, And there was this outrage, but there was this like, okay, now it's so clear that there's absolutely no excuse for you not to, to be vocal about this, not to be openly supportive of racial justice, right? And then, uh, we have the November 2016 election. Trump is in office. All of the things that come along with that, his, his racial baggage leading up to the election, the stuff that he's done as president calling uh, 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 countries with black and brown people, s hole countries. Uh, beginning his candidacy by calling uh, some Mexican uh, immigrants rapists, um, all of these kinds of things. The 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 family separation, all of that stuff. Then it, the conversation is still okay. Now you know what are we going to say about this? Churches, where are you? Christians, where are you? Uh, American people, where are you? But then it stuff keeps happening, right? And now it feels like, okay, we've, we've raised the alarm. We've, even now, though, I would say some, some things have been you know, moderately effective in the sense that there are a lot more Christian leaders who don't have to be dragged out to say something. I'm, seeing, I'm mm-hmm. saying this from a sort of social media perspective, whatever. They'll say something. But is it really changing? Because now we've seen Floyd said, I can't breathe that's a direct echo of eric garner who was murdered mm. in uh new york city a few years ago saying the exact same phrase i can't breathe 11 times before he died and so so even that that the very same words are being repeated as black people are being brutalized and killed so the so the feeling now i have and many others i think is 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 is, is there anything we can do is is anything mm. going to work um, or are we are we just going to be trapped in this cycle of being under threat and in danger and exhausted all the time? So I'm seeing a lot more of the resignation, the cynicism, the fatigue, the fear, uh, whereas I think earlier on in the social media era when these things happened, there was a lot more, let's mobilize, let's get there. Now that's happening. Don't get me wrong. That's happening, especially on the ground. But I also see the weariness, the battle fatigue that we're in.
0: You know, there's this underlining current to all of this, which is that, like I said, this is going on in the midst of a global pandemic. For many folks, they've been either in isolation or in much, much deeper isolation than, than is usual, even first responders having less kind of contact as they've uh, been required to socially distance, um, for their own protection and for the protection of, of everyone else, uh, for the last several months. Um, you know, if I can just kind of share this in particular, I've really dealt in these last couple of months with depression I've never faced in my entire life Mm. and just been pulled to a darkness that I am not comfortable with and have not been comfortable with. And I can't help but not feel in the midst of yet another crisis like this, and I don't mean the crisis of the the pandemic crisis, but I mean the racial crisis that we're uh, experiencing at this very moment with yet another dead man uh, that that is being kind of cast to the side, so that everybody just looks at you know buildings on fire and not even looking where that rage is coming from and where it stems from. And I can't help but separate these two feelings that I have, yeah. right? Like that that there's this. The the nature of how we have existed as a society in this oddity of the last couple of months, mixed with now, as you mentioned, it's it should be a moment as kind of this call to arms and a call to action. And that's that is definitely happening. But the fact that even as that happens, it's mixed in with kind of the emotional state that we as a society, as as a global society, but as an American society are dealing with, I don't know. It it just seems it seems like a bad a bad cocktail. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, You know, it is. It is. I mean, the the we were all already carrying our own personal burdens, our own burdens for whatever particular social justice cause, and then the 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 pandemic comes along and adds fifty pounds to that backpack, hmm. and, and and we're barely able to to take another step to move forward under this added load, and then what happens is anything else that happens like the murder of another black person is adding to that way and so our knees are threatening to buckle and maybe have and maybe we're we're on our hands and knees struggling just to 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 try to get uh get back on our feet um and that is totally understandable. And and I think I don't know, I've I've been thinking a lot about audience lately. Who am I speaking to? Who's listening mm-hmm. to me? Not mm-hmm. to presume that anyone is, but um, you know, it's a lot of white evangelicals who are what I call in the mushy middle. And so you have in every sort of group of people the extremes. On one extreme of white evangelicals are the outright racists, the people who if you say black lives matter, they'll say all lives matter. If you say um you know a riot is the language of the unheard they'll say what about black on black crime um you know these people are 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 just thugs whatever they might be right there are those people on the far other extreme are the people who are activists like they're out there they're ready to go they're on the streets um if they listen to one of my talks they're the people you just have to put a seatbelt on and say just just listen for the whole talk and then go out and and, and run and change the world but then there's the big group of people in the middle who grew up maybe in like a culture wars conservative evangelical kind of context they know especially with race that there's something wrong Uh, but they're just starting to awaken to it in the past few years and they're not quite sure what to do where they are how to think about it they don't have a coherent system yet Um, so they're still learning but they want to be part of the solution Um, even if they might unintentionally sometimes be part of the problem. So I think that's one audience. And to that audience, I say, um, this is the time to keep going. So the big difference with white and black people is um, the switch. And so uh, for white people, they can kind of turn on and off the racial justice switch when they feel like it. Because if they turn the switch off, the reality is, in a white supremacist society, they can maneuver just fine. They'll be okay. If they choose to turn the switch on and care about people for whom this society is not okay, then that's great. But the question is, will you leave it on when the, when the going gets tough and when the exhaustion hits in like during a pandemic? Uh, for black people, we don't have the option to turn that switch off. It's always on, even when we forget it's on. And then sometimes we're rudely reminded, like we go bird watching and then get the police called on us, that kind of a thing. Um, so for black people, as you're mentioning this depression and these feelings, um, all of us need internal work to do. For black people, I think the internal work, my, my therapist friend recommended write a letter to white supremacy. Get all the trauma out, all the rage, all the feelings, all the sadness, all put it out there in words, whether that's handwritten type, whatever, but then burn it. And the idea is that 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 you you're just you're just giving it an outlet. What we can't do is hold all this in. Um, anybody. We can't just hold all this in. And to 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 the white folks who want to be allies and advocates, I would do the same thing, but the the tone is maybe a little different. Maybe you have some. Feelings of guilt or shame about your whiteness, uh, a feeling of powerlessness in the midst of all this, uh, a conversation with the white people who are enmeshed in white supremacy that you wish you could have, but you're not quite ready to have yet. Put that all in words and then burn it. But get it out is, is the only thing I can think of doing, um, internal, in terms of internal work right now.
0: Man, that's so good. And I'll probably I'll probably cut what I'm about to say out. But you know, it's interesting because this this last past weekend was Memorial Day and we were taking a, a family vacation, not you know, not not with any goal of getting into like crowded space or anything, but typically we we try to like go down to the coast and uh spend a couple of days down there once a year with the kids. And we made the mistake of going on Memorial Day. It wasn't for Memorial Day, it just happened to all fall out that way. Uh, going on Memorial Day out in Trump country. Mm. And we didn't know we were in Trump country Mm -hmm. (laughs) until we got there. And it was enraging, man. There was these uh, Confederate flags flying everywhere, this kind of Confederate American hybrid flag flying everywhere. Mm. There was literally flags. And I've got my seven-year-old that I'm teaching how to read and reads almost better than me. Jamar, she reads almost Mm. better than me. They've got flags that say Trump 2020 your feelings Mm-mm. like that is and there's a bunch of these flags all over there that and then also uh trump 2020 no bullshit wow uh sorry sorry for the language like i said i might end up cutting this uh, and i remember because i had to, i didn't even i was i was like man there's a lot of people here and like everything was kind of too far and then as it kind of came in to view i was actually going to the store and i saw where they were like selling these these flags and everything and i remember feeling terrified and then remembering wait a minute i'm white huh. like these people don't know me from Adam. Mm-hmm. They're just going to assume I'm one of them. And I have literally no reason to be physically afraid for myself or my family. Now, right. I still felt like emotionally just overwhelmed by kind of like, you know, the fact that there is this amount of support for this man. And in this exact, like for this, not even in the, you know, I mean, you know, at least some white people who support Trump at least have the dignity to be ashamed of that fact. These yep. are not those people. Yeah. You know yeah. what I
1: mean? Yep. Wow. Anyway,
0: but I mean, like, you know, that's the thing that was the switch. I was like, man, I need, I need to take a break right now. Cause like this, it's just been a tough couple of months and I've been trying to get here with my family mm. and, and I was like, and I have this option. I can kind of switch this off for a couple of days. Now, mm. the funny thing is I couldn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it like, was so in your
1: face. Yeah.
0: It's so in my face, but the, but from the kind of fear factor, you're, you're dead right on that's that. That's a man. good
1: point. Man, I mean, it's helpful for me to hear because I don't ever think about that, right? Like I was saying to some other folks that oftentimes people ask me, well, like, what's the vision? What, what does success look like with racial justice? What does the world look like if, if you are effective with racial justice efforts? And, and I so struggle with that question because the only reality I've ever known is racial injustice and violence mm-hmm. against black bodies. Mm-hmm. And so it's so hard to pull out of that reality to envision a different one. And yet we're called to, we need to, we're people of hope and, and God gives us a vision of, in Revelation and, and really all over the Bible. But, um, at the same time, one of the things that I think is, is especially burdensome right now is when you see this, these pictures, especially of police violence, right? Or, or, or of everyday, you know, these hashtags blank while black. So latest one is bird watching <laughs> while black. Um, but it could be, you know, Starbucks getting coffee while black. It could be, you know, driving while black. The, 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 this is how terrorism works, right? Because we see one incident of it or the latest incident of it. And we know that it could happen to any of us at any time, which means my very physical presence somewhere can be perceived as a threat and can rebound back on me in violence. And so I'm in Trump country too, uh, deep south. And I have a Black Lives Matter t-shirt that was given to me, I think through an inner varsity, um, college campus ministry. So it's, it's not just Black Lives Matter on the back is this whole like definition of the Imago day and putting it in a Christian context and all that yeah. stuff. But I was like, if I wear this shirt in public, it's not only a political statement. It could be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Now that's with the mm-hmm. shirt, but, but, but also I, I put out a tweet that said, Um, I try to make it a point for my neighbors to see me coming and going out of my residence so they know I live there because if I am in workout clothes, you know, sweats and a hoodie, if I come back late from working at my church, you know, uh, these normal things that people do, but they see a black man doing that they might call the cops because does he live there? Mm-hmm. Is he trying to break into the place? Et cetera, et cetera. So that's the burden that that I'm acutely feeling right now is that I don't know how to explain when your very body is considered the problem mm-hmm. so that wherever your body goes, there's potentially a problem there.
0: So, you know, as you mentioned uh, earlier, of course, right now the, the discourse kind of on a uh, national broad sense has kind of been shifted to what's been going on right now in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, obviously there's uh, the the images are, I mean, it's impossible not to look at the images from the context of, you know, what your kids and grandkids will be seeing in, in textbooks. You know, there's, there's a moment in time that we are all kind of experiencing knowing that we'll be looking back to this, especially as we see some of the images coming out. Um, that being said, I think that it's Probably important to look at what's going on right now uh, from a historical perspective, right? Like from from the context of like, you know, what 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 are we seeing not just now? What are we seeing now? Um, but can you kind of give us a little bit, kind of a sense of of what riots have been to the movement in the past? What things are like? What what is being communicated right now? And then also the way in which that's being perceived um, uh, from a from a national standpoint.
1: Well, even though the topic is heavy, you know I love these history questions, so I'm glad you tossed me that <laughs> straight down the middle. Um, right. We have to understand the historical context here. Okay, here's a slight sidebar. Um, I'm just to be really honest with with folks, I'm still decolonizing a lot of My theology, a lot of my socialization. And part of that socialization was to believe in American exceptionalism, which is that idea that this America is a special country. And even in a Christian frame is like God's chosen country to be a city on a hill and a light to the world and that God's going to bless us for, for our specialness or some, something. Part of American exceptionalism is the idea that problems like fascism and authoritarianism and state suppression and repression are problems that other countries have. Those are problems over there, across an ocean, across a continent, but not here in America, the exceptional, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We can't have that here. Sure, we have our problems, but the American spirit and the American ethos rises above that to give freedom and liberty to all. And it's not a perfect road, it's an uneven road, but we make progress. That is what we have to disabuse ourselves of, is believing that America is in any way invulnerable or not susceptible to the same problems and ills and repressions that we see elsewhere. So, all of that ties into policing in this country. So, It is absolutely the case, not only that police can be agents of authoritarianism and terror, but they have been and often still are. It can happen here, and it is happening here. So, what people have to understand is the origins of policing. Ties all the way back to the idea of slave patrols, where white people would go out looking for either escaped slaves or after... Um, emancipation, uh, what happened was, well, prior to emancipation, many cities did not have a standing police force. They didn't have a line item in the budget for it. It was a very community-led affair so that if somebody broke the law, what you did was gather together a group of of men, they, they got their shotguns and you went and took care of the problem some type of way. Prior to the Civil War, that was mostly directed toward poor white people. Because all the poor black people were under control in the system of enslavement. Now, after the Civil War, you have abolition and emancipation. And so you've got over 3 million black people who are now free and wandering the land. But guess what? Plantation owners still need cheap labor. And so here comes the convict lease system. Here comes sharecropping. But also, there is still this white supremacy ethos that says we need to control black people and we need to control black bodies. So, so what do places do? States, uh, uh, come up with vagrancy laws and, um, basically cast a wide net to get black people into the, criminal justice or injustice system, and that relies on policing. And one of the insidious parts about this is you didn't have to be a lawfully authorized law enforcement professional to arrest a black person. You could be any old citizen, any old white person could say that this black person is doing something wrong or shouldn't be here and and essentially be agents of the state or agents of terror. Now, that's the origins of policing. If you look at the exercise of policing in the United States, what we know is this. Police are still subject to the same racial biases as any civilian. And so uh, to say someone fits the description or looks suspicious, a lot of times that's attached to their perceptions of black and brown people. Uh, we also know that policing is tied to money so that when we look at places like Ferguson, a lot of people will fixate. There's two Department of Justice reports. A lot of people will fixate on the one that says Mike Brown didn't in fact have his hands up, as the chant said, hands up, don't shoot, Uh, but that he may have been an aggressor in some sense or form. But there was another report about the Ferguson Police Department that said the police department was getting orders from city administrators to ticket more black people so that they could raise revenue for the city and meet budget. So that meant more policing. And let me make it personal. Um, Policing is being under a constant state of surveillance. That's what it feels like for black and brown people. So I have so many stories. Um, I remember in high school, we had a couple of fights. It's a big school, This goes to funding. They had to consolidate schools. The school was built as a middle school, now acting out as a high school, was built to to hold a certain number of students, holding almost double that. So tensions are high. We had fights. They put in metal detectors and had cops at every entrance. Did that make us feel safer? No. It made us feel like a threat. And it made us want to lean into, okay, you, you think of us this way? Sure, we'll act like it. I also remember even before high school, in junior high, All my friends are uh, black and Latino, mostly Mexican. And so when we would go to the movie theaters, guess what? Police officer there. I remember going to the arcade. It was in the same parking lot. It was across the parking lot. We had to walk there a little ways. And when we got to the arcade, there was always uh, uh, a cop position there. And this is an arcade, and he's following us around. And I'm like, what are we going to steal in an arcade? Are we going to break open the machine and grab the quarters? Why are you following us in the arcade? But but that feeling of being constantly surveilled in your own community as if you are the problem. I can't convey how much anger, how much frustration, how much powerlessness, because they've got a gun and they've got a badge. So if anything pops off, even if you're in the right or haven't done anything wrong, guess who's going to bear the consequences? So that's what's the infuriating part. It's like we, we look at police as this sort of unassailable force of good. And the way it's been practiced, it's not. And it's not bad apples. It's not an individual. It's the way the system works. It's the way policing is set up. And so there's a lot of people doing, you know, reform and saying things that we need to do different. But but what I need people to realize is that if you have not been in a community that has been considered a place where a heavy police presence is required, you can't understand the anger and the frustration that we're seeing on the news right now.
0: Well, so this this gets into something I wanted to ask you about. So, you know, one of the things that we've seen popping up on Twitter, and we've seen this before in the past, but especially in the midst of everything that's going on, is a cry to abolish the police. Now, it's interesting because seeing that, like seeing that phrase without any kind of a historical context <laughs> typically leads to a lot of, you know, really, really uh, uninformed hot takes on it. But I think what you just laid out kind of goes directly to that. I'm curious as to your thoughts for kind of that, that call to abolish the police.
1: Right. So, so we do need to put it in context of the way policing affects black and brown communities. So in that same report on Ferguson, there were over a dozen incidents of dog bites. Now, imagine, I mean, to get to the point where a, a police canine is biting someone it has to be an intense situation. And it doesn't happen often but in this report in every single case where it happened it was for it was a dog biting a black person hmm. the police were trying to arrest a black person um, when we look at the fact that in Minneapolis it took a very the, a progressive mayor it took the i think result of years of movements like black lives matter and calling attention to police brutality that these four officers were, in fact, fired swiftly, which I don't know, we could have expected five or six years ago. But at the same time, no one's being charged for murder yet, which is precisely what happened. You even have other police departments and folks saying, yeah, that was way out of line. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so um, this is an egregious an example, and yet the conviction of police officers in these violent incidents – is so astronomically low that that you, you, you would be a fool to expect that's what would typically happen. Um, so that is part of why... And then the police are just on the front lines, right? Once you get in the system, then you get sent to jail or prison. And that's a whole other system. So this idea, abolish the police, is basically saying... Reform is not possible. Because there was never a solid foundation to build on. The foundation from the beginning was racist. And um, somebody I read, you can't reform a landmine. (laughs) The very purpose of a landmine is destruction and violence and death. So you can't retrofit it for life or for justice. And so they're saying, you just have to get rid of the landmine. And so um, Abolish the Police is about uh, saying that we are going to continue to see these instances of police brutality and violence, and anything else we do is just tweaking uh, a broken system. And the right. only thing that we can do to actually end this or to see a significant reduction is to abolish the police and come up with something totally different. Uh, right. That totally different... Is not one thing. It's not establishing another police like force. Uh, what I've seen activists recommend is typically a combination of things from community panels trained in restorative justice, uh, that, that, that basically handle any issues that come up, which is not that different from what was happening in small communities prior to the Civil War. Um, It it has to do with gradually defunding the police so that the money that we're spending now on guns and mace and training police officers, that gets funneled into other things that we know work to reduce crime, such as mental health care. Uh, it's estimated that up to 40% of people who are incarcerated have some sort of mental health issue. The The statistics vary, but it's a significant number of people who come into contact with the police because they don't have the medicine or the therapy they need to live a, a healthy mental life. And so what would it look like to spend more money on that than the handcuffs that put them in the the carceral system? Um, there's a lot more you know other kinds of things and it seems here's the thing a lot of it is 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 more perception than practicality it seems unmanageable it seems unlikely it seems out of the realm of possibility but until you actually start looking at alternatives unless you unless you and let uh, abolish the police, enter into the realm of imagination, it's always going to seem impossible. And so did freedom for Black people at one time. And so did voting rights at one time. And so did women voting at one time. Um And so did a country based on democracy at one time, right? Um So to me, every option should be on the table. I don't know if I'm in a pro-abolish-the-police kind of person. There are other really good organizations out there advocating for police reforms that I think are really important. Um, mm-hmm. All I would say is, wherever you are, change is usually incremental. We can push as hard as we need to, but uh, I don't know that this country, given <laughs> support for this president and the ideologies that go behind it, is going to see, uh, you know, a quick Switch from the status quo to something radically different.
0: Yeah. So this episode's probably going out fairly immediately um, after we get done recording, and you know, as we're as we are recording, there are um, obviously the the riots are going on in, in Minneapolis. You've got um, assemblies going on and uh, uh, demonstrations going on around the country this afternoon and this evening, and likely over the weekend. My question is where is the church in all this or rather maybe perhaps where should the church be in all
1: this? Mm, it's a good question. Uh, I would be if I was in Minneapolis undoubtedly on the streets. Uh, there's a lot of ways to be on the streets. I know that in some demonstrations churches went out there and just handed out water or maybe face masks now in this time of mm. the pandemic. I think there are I think what's critically important is is that um, churches demonstrate their presence. In this time, if the church is absent, even physically absent in places where there are demonstrations, that sends a message. I was just on a training. Um, I, w- I, w- I was uh, giving a presentation for a a group of college students who were who were going to be summer missionaries. I don't know what their plans are now, but they went ahead with the training, and they are going into you know these a lot of communities that are predominantly black and they're mostly white. And I'm like, listen. Nobody wants to hear your message about Jesus until they're sure you care about justice. And I think mm-hmm. that's true for the entire church. Uh, folks who are the recipients of oppression don't want to hear your good news about spiritual salvation that is totally divorced from their material and physical situation. It's only good news if it is good news to the poor, if it is good news to the oppressed, if it is good news to the people who are marginalized by society and uh, who are on the receiving end of the abuses of power. And that has to be part of the conversation. How do churches do that? It, it, it should go without saying by now that we need to be preaching about it. And so I think, for sure, pausing uh, whether that's in prayer or doing a whole sermon or, or I know one, uh, church in Chicago is, is doing their service this sunny Sunday as a sort of funeral because the amount of grief and lament, wow. uh, wow. they wanted it to feel like a funeral service in which they can honor the dead, but also cry out for justice and also just weep. Because of the pain that they're healing, feeling. And so I don't think that's out of bounds either. Um, by now, if, if you're the type of person who listens to a podcast like this, for sure, you should be speaking out. But I would say, what are the tangible ways that, that we should be involved in an ongoing way? Because what's critical now, the most helpful voices right now are the ones that have been doing this work for years, right? So, so what does it look to get? What does it look like to get yourself or your church involved in a local chapter of the NAACP or whatever community organization is working for police reform, and not just dipping in and dipping out when there's a crisis? I think that's the big Mm -hmm. push that churches need to to have right now is when these organizers are calling and saying we need a demonstration or we're going to march to the Capitol or we're sending letters. Like churches should already be on their email list. Churches should already be part of their calling tree. So that's the challenge right now uh, for, I think, many churches, particularly white churches, um, is, is to be involved in this stuff, to keep that light switch on, and to be involved in this stuff as a regular part of your ministry and not as something exceptional when a crisis occurs.
0: You know, something that's been terrifying to me as the images, uh, more and more images come out from the demonstrations and riots that are going on is just seeing, yes, a lot of face masks, but a lot of folks not wearing face masks. Oh, and goodness. also just the notion that the face mask isn't going to save you. Like the face mask is there mostly if you've got it to try to help keep other people from getting it. And right. then on top of that, it doesn't, you know, that, that solves your breathing problem. It doesn't solve your your touch problem. And a lot of this, a lot of demonstrations by the very nature of what is trying to be accomplished, uh, tend to require physical touch, locking arms, um, being in close proximity. Uh, there's a there's an image that I saw kind of flying up of of kind of a, a wall of folks uh, kind of standing between protesters and uh, and police with their arms linked. And on the one hand, it's beautiful, and on the other hand, it's terrifying.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. because of
0: because of the health situations, and you know the the buildings can be rebuilt. Uh, you know, the damage can be, can be restored with time, but lives cannot. And we are right now in the midst of, you know, the second surge coming on strong, man, here in Houston in particular, um, the the cases have increased pretty dramatically. Yes. Um, in fact, just to kind of share my wife works in healthcare and, you know, Houston was not hit nearly as bad as some of the other larger cities. And yet it is one of the largest cities in America. And so when Texas you know, uh, kind of tried to get things going back up again, you have a lot of folks who have kind of this false sense of confidence because, hey, it never really hit us as bad as we were expected to hit. And I, I'm predicting that it's going to hit us, you know, twice as hard, if not way more than that the second time around, just because of the, you know, uh, folks aren't uh, even even without demonstrations going on. So anyway, all that to say, you know, I I think in the midst of wanting to utilize this moment to be productive, to be, uh, to make sure, you know, that, that your anger is not. And I mean, I say this to myself as well, that your anger is not applied in a self-destructive form. I'm not necessarily judging that. Cause I mean, the anger I'm not judging the anger at all, but the question is, how can it be? How can you funnel that in a productive way that, that moves things forward? That's right. And Anyway, just to the, to the organizers and everything, just, just be mindful that the pandemic didn't take a pause for, for, for these demonstrations, like, like you and everyone around you right now is still very much at risk and we need to be careful. So as, as demonstrations go on, um, just remember like, you know, again, you know, burnt buildings can be rebuilt, damage can be restored, but lives cannot um, that is at the very crux of, of what's going on right now. And that needs to be at the not just at the start of the message, but but throughout throughout the actions that are, are being done right yeah, now. So you know, anyway, I just want to just throw that out. <laughs> how there.
1: do you protest in a pandemic? That's that's a question. That's, I, that's
0: huge, man. Yeah. And you know, you think about like, you know, historically in the civil rights movement, the amount of uh effort that was taken to, you know, as as especially like um as kind of performance art was kind of utilized to to make sure that sit ins and everything was done a certain way and practiced and everything else, and you know, that, there's so much that I think we need to be proactive in. Um, yeah. So that because you mean know, the reality is is that George Floyd is not going to be the last hashtag. You know what I mean? Like he's not going to be the last hashtag. And so making sure that as we think about what the world is rechanging to in a COVID climate. Um, how does activism look in a way that you know? Yes, gets people's attention. Yes, stops stops the world for a moment and forces everyone to look, but also does so without you know killing you in the process. Yeah, and I think we should, um, realize as well as spreading like, it to others.
1: It, it, right, and spreading it to others is massively important. Um, and I think we should realize like the depth of conviction and the gravity of the event that would bring hundreds of people out into the streets Mm -hmm. in the midst Mm -hmm. of a pandemic right right. like it's not it's not the uh spicy chicken sandwich at at popeyes that's doing this (laughs) it's not it's not um you know it's not even the debate over economic stimulus that's doing this uh well for some people it's they're they're protesting they wanted to get out um but these protests are coming as a result of the murder of another black person, and by the police, no less. And so what must it take for people who have been sheltering in place for so long to say, nope, now it's time for me to get out? So that just communicates kind of the depth, I think, of emotion that's happening right now. And in light of that, I can't emphasize enough, all I can say is what I'm trying to do, which is really tend to my soul and my emotions. And we, if we, if we focus on the external work without doing the internal work, I think what you're getting at, Bo, is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So how do you protest and not die from right. a virus? Uh, and in the same light, if we do the external work, but not the internal work of tending to our souls and our emotional health, then we are not going to be around for the long haul. We're not going to be around to even see the change that we're working for. And so it is this very delicate, tension that we have to exert ourselves for justice but but also heal ourselves in the midst of injustice and so I talk I I, I I have a therapist and um we're meeting online and over the phone right now and I think there there are more and more services like that betterhelp.com is one uh, where you can still get counseling and you can choose, uh, you can indicate your preference for therapists, even along racial lines. So I have a black Christian woman therapist and I'm so glad. Um, and, you know, r- doing things like writing down that letter to white supremacy. Uh, earlier this week, I had a prayer meeting on Zoom with my church. We do it every week. And this was the first time since the pandemic began, we started doing these online meetings that I really, really didn't want to hop on the call. But I'm so glad I did, because what I found was that everyone was feeling the weight of the world right now, and we just vented, and we were probably more honest this week than we've ever been, and it was so healing and cathartic. So now is the time to attend to those, as far as the actions that we can take, I think that's the first action that we need to take, is tending to our souls and our emotional health, whatever that looks like.
0: That's good, man. Akemi posted out earlier today um, on a Twitter thread, just to kind of she landed on, on this kind of these steps of pray, think, act, and specifically in that order. And man, I needed to hear that. I actually wrote that up on my board and I've been kind of going in a, a circle of going back through that praying, thinking, acting, and <sighs> that's good, man. Um, man, speaking, speaking of which, you know, I, I know this is kind of, it's, it's a different episode. It's not one, especially in terms of footnotes that we've ever put out before. Um, and, you know, just kind of keeping with the fact that it is a different episode. It, I mean, can you bring us out in prayer?
1: I'd love to. Please pray with me. Lord, the psalm says, how long, O Lord? How long? And that's a question I think many of our, us are asking, is how long, O Lord, will we see black unarmed women and men killed on camera? How long will the perpetrators go free without a criminal charge? How long will we protest in the streets and be met with uh, a militarized police force seeking to violently repress us? How long, O Lord, uh, will we have to hear the rebuttals of people who just don't understand and saying that the issue is really something else when the issue is racism and and injustice? How long, O oh Lord, will this COVID nineteen disproportionately impact Black and Brown people and those we consider essential workers, but who we don't treat as essential on a normal and daily day day to day basis? How long, O oh Lord, will we have to have podcasts like this where we're pouring out our hearts and our grief? Into a microphone, hoping people will listen and hear and respond in a positive way. How long, oh Lord? And God, we don't have the answers. And the reality is we're not in control. And that feeling, Lord, of helplessness makes it feel like walking through a valley. A valley in the shadow of death. But God, we pray for your presence. We pray, Lord. That in the midst of this darkness and this valley, in the midst of the pressure and the weight of that question, how long, that you would be right beside us and that your rod and your staff would comfort us. Not because the problems have gone away, but because you've shown up. So show up with us, please, Lord. Please bring healing. Bring justice. Bring comfort, oh God, in this moment. We are your children. You are our loving Father, and we hold up your promises to you and beg and plead, Lord, for relief. So I pray that anyone listening to this would feel that relief, even in this moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit coming to remind us that how long? Not long. And in the midst of it, you are right there with us. You know exactly what it's like. Your arm is around our shoulders. We can lean our heads on you. We can weep. We can be silent. We can speak, but you're right there. Thank you for being there, Lord. Bring us healing, in Jesus' name.